How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. A little bit less caffeinated than I have been lately because I just got back from a trip, and when I got home, realized we were almost out of half and half. So I've had significantly less coffee than I normally would have had by this time of day. I should probably clarify, by half and half I mean the dairy one, because it does occur to me that, mathematically, any product that you have one of could be called half and half. And that's about as much observational humor as I can muster right now, as I mentioned. I'm a little under-caffeinated. So tell you what, instead... Let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's... Uh... Do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Brad Reed. And this one is specifically for this issue, so I guess, uh... Spoiler alert for the spoilers I'm about to give you in the synopsis? Anyway. The Beast has a dog and old Isaac's a gargoyle. And Big Over Mindy is peddling some snake oil. Brunhilde's most miffed, and she wants to say stop this. No wedding for Patsy. Instead, a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Brad. Defenders, number 122. August, 1983. Things to come. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inkted by Kim DeMolder. Lettered by Shelley Lefferman. Colored by Christy Steele, and edited by Al Milgram and Ann Nascenti. Defensive lineup Son of Satan, Hellcat, Valkyrie, Gargoyle, Beast, the sextet of dead psychics that hermit crabbed their way into the body of a space gladiator who we have come to know as Overmindy, Doctor Strange, the Incredible Hulk, Namor the Submariner. The Silver Surfer, Iceman, and introducing Sassafras. Hooray! Previously in the Defenders. Devil Daddy Dugada, Damien Hellstrom, a.k.a. Son of Satan, has long had a contentious relationship with the evil force inside of him known as the Dark Soul, which is the source of both his demonic sorceress powers and his irascible temperament. In recent months, the Satan-spawned superhero has, in turn, given in to the Dark Soul and decided to become all the way evil, learned to repress the Dark Soul and decide to be good again, and most recently had the Dark Soul stolen from him by a recently amnesiac, nigh-omnipotent, speedo-clad monk named Miracle Man. Miracle Man had informed our heroes that he intended to use the Dark Soul to augment his own not-insignificant reality-warping powers and improve the world through acts of benevolent colonialism. The Defenders were initially of mixed opinion on the relative merits of this proposed philosophy of Miracle Man's burden, 
But then the scantily clad monastic menace succumbed to the Dark Souls' influence and started doing some tortures and earthquakes and stuff, at which point his purportedly good intentions became a moot point. Eventually, the gang managed to drive the Dark Soul out of Miracle Man. The Hellborn entity attempted to resume its residency in Damien Hellstrom's tummy, but Hellcat and Overmindy used their psychic powers to protect Damon, and the Dark Soul instead hopped into a nearby snake and wandered off. Hooray! In other Defenders news, Hank McCoy, aka Beast, has recently expressed dissatisfaction both with his romantic relationship with rad librarian Vera and with the gang's decentralized management style. Also, a bizarre cosmic assembly known as the Tribunal has determined through their agents, an elf with a gun known as Elf with a Gun, and a secretly robotic unemployed nurse named Luann Bloom, that the Defenders represent an existential threat to all of creation, and must be destroyed. Gadzooks! What were the qualities that attracted Beast to join our titular non-team, which he now views as leaderless and disorganized? What punishment will Miracle Man face for nearly enslaving the planet? And are our heroes concerned about the fact that a powerful entity like the Dark Soul is slithering around on the loose? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so he liked the fact that the Defenders were leaderless and disorganized. None. And, nah. I mean, when has a diabolical entity in the body of a snake ever caused any mischief for humanity? The gang drops a now-depowered Miracle Man off at the monastery at which they found him. Father Gossett, the monastery's abbot, is like, now I know you've lost your powers at least three times before, and each time you've regained them, become arguably more evil, and tried to take over the world. So, uh, this time, don't do that, okay? Miracle Man is like, Don't worry, I've definitely put my evil ways behind me for good. Fourth time's the charm. Fourth time was not the charm. For the first time in his adult life, Damon Hellstrom has neither superpowers nor a malevolent force inside of his soul filling him with rage and urging him to be evil. Hellcat draws him aside and is like, Hey Damon, now that you have a totally different personality that I've never interacted with before, I'm pretty sure I'm in love with you. Damon is like, I'm sorry, Patsy, but before I can get into a relationship with anyone, I really need to figure out who I am first. I've been through a lot of trauma lately and should probably take some time to process it before I start dating. I think I'm going to stay here at the monastery for a little while. Wow, that's surprisingly mature. Good for you, Damon. Then after like one second, he's like, Never mind, let's make out. Patsy and Damon make out. The next morning, everyone's hanging out in the living room of the brownstone shared by Patsy, Valkyrie, Gargoyle, Beast, and their long-suffering housekeeper, Dolly Donahue. Beast is goofing around with his new puppy, Sassafras, who is fucking adorable. Nobody's seen Patsy or Damon since they went upstairs last night, and there's some speculation as to whether or not they are still doing it. The conjecture about the new couple's stamina and what length of refractory period they may or may not require is put to rest when Damon and Patsy arrive home bearing a box of pastries and inform the gang that they got up early and went out to get everyone breakfast. Hooray! 
Then they mention that they're going to get married in a few weeks and move to California and that they will be leaving that afternoon to start making preparations. This news is significantly more divisive than that of their pastry purchasing. Gargoyle Beast and Overmindy offer their congratulations. Dolly and Valkyrie are less enthusiastic about the impending nuptials. Patsy clears the room so that she can have a chat with the two naysayers and try to address their concerns. Dolly is like, Look, Patsy, I've known you since you were a little girl, and despite the fact that I might be dating a guy who tried to sell your soul to demons in exchange for economic incentives for his hometown, I'm very protective of you. This Damon guy is a dangerous, violent lunatic who is very possessive and flies into a rage when he feels rejected. I'm not sure he's husband material. Patsy is like, Oh, Dolly, that was the old Damon. Ever since he's lost the Dark Soul, his whole personality has totally changed. He's a virtual stranger about whom I know almost nothing. In light of that, how could you possibly object to us getting married in a few weeks? This argument seems to assuage Dolly's fears. Patsy is like, Okay, Valkyrie, now what's your problem with me marrying a guy who violently shoved me to the ground last week when I spurned his advances? V Valkyrie? But the newly affianced cat-costumed crime fighter finds herself speaking to thin air, because Val has stormed out the door, hopped on her pegasus, and flown away. Meanwhile, at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Steve is in his private quarters when Wong knocks on the door. Steve is like, Wong! What have I told you about interrupting my meditations? Wong is like, um, don't. But since you didn't have the sock on the doorknob, I figured this was just regular meditation and not flame ghost meditation, so I figured I'd risk it. Steve is like, hmm, still. Wong continues, besides, this seems like it might be important. The Hulk, Namor, and the Silver Surfer are all here. The aforementioned trio enters the room, and Steve is like, Well, this is a surprise. Namor is like, It is? Well, that's weird, because the only reason we showed up is because you sent us an astral message saying that there was an emergency and asking that we please come here immediately. Steve is like, Asking? Please? That doesn't sound like me. Silver Surfer is like, no. No, it does not. Hulk is like, I too am vexed by the atypical courtesy displayed in your summons. Steve is like, Whoa? Hulk is like, Oh, did I not mention that this is now the period in the early 80s when I possess Bruce Banner's intelligence and talk like a big old nerd? Because it is, and I do. Good to know. A shadowy figure from just off-panel is like, Yeah, I'm the one who sent those messages. Good to know that if I ever have to do it again, I should try to sound more like a dick. Only, I don't think it'll come up, on account of you'll all be dead soon. The mysterious figure steps out of the shadows. <sighs> itself with a gun. Because of course it is. The diminutive death dealer pulls the trigger on his weapon, and there's an explosive report from the barrel. Back on the Upper West Side, outside the Defender's Brownstone, the gang says goodbye to Patsy and Damon as they embark on their new lives together. As they're getting in their taxi, Patsy is like, I'll miss you all, but I'll see you soon at the wedding, 
I gotta admit, though, I'm kind of bummed that Val didn't even show up to say goodbye. But just then, Valkyrie lands Aragorn on a nearby rooftop. The winged stallion rears up on its hind legs, and with a tear in her eye, the Asgardian Amazon astride him shouts out, Fare thee well, best friend! I wish you good luck! Aww. Patsy is touched by this gesture. The taxi pulls away and takes the happy couple to the train station. Later that afternoon, Beast is trying, with little success, to teach Sassafras not to pee in the house. The lesson ends abruptly when the doorbell rings, and teacher and pupil alike rush to see who's there. It's a mailman. Turns out that when the Beast moved out of the Avengers mansion, he forgot to fill out a change of address form, and his fan mail has just been piling up for months. The Beast dumps the several sacks of cards and letters in the middle of the living room and starts swimming through them like he was Scrooge McDuck. Sassafras pees on some of the mail. Hopefully those two events happen in that order. The doorbell rings again, and Beast runs to retrieve what he assumes is yet another bag of fan mail. But when he opens the door this time, Hank is surprised to find that rather than the expected correspondence-lated postal worker, he is greeted by his old buddy Iceman. Val Kilmer's character from Top Gun? No, a different Iceman. Mafia hitman Richard Kuklinski, who famously froze the body of one of his victims to disguise the time of death? No, thankfully it's not him either. The guy who cometh in that Eugene O'Neill play that I know the name of and nothing else about? Probably not, but it's tough to tell for sure because, like I said, I only know the name of that play. This Iceman is Bobby Drake. Hank's friend and former teammate from his days on the X-Men. Bobby is a mutant who has the power to make ice form in the air in whatever shape and volume he chooses. He often uses this power to zoom around on slides of ice that form under his feet. He also either coats his body in ice or turns his body into ice. I've never been entirely sure which it is. You can tell me if you want, but honestly, this uncertainty isn't something that particularly bothers me. Hank and Bobby goof around together while they catch up on old times. It's pretty cute. Up in her bedroom, Val is thinking about how much she's gonna miss Patsy, and that there is now very little tethering her to the non-team that she has called home for so long. She starts reminiscing about making out with Namor a few issues ago, which reminds her of the time a few thousand years ago when she made out with Thor. These remembrances of Makeout's past are interrupted by the abrupt appearance of Odin's giant floating head directly above her. The disembodied head of the Allfather is like, Hey Valkyrie, hope you're not still pissed off about me forsaking you for a couple of thousand years there, because there's some shit going down in Asgard that I could really use your help with. Val is like, an opportunity to hurl myself into a dangerous adventure rather than examine my feelings of abandonment and loneliness, you say? I'm in. Odin's giant disembodied head is like, Don't you want to know what the problem I need help with is? Val is like, Sorry, can't hear you over the emotions I'm repressing. Goodbye, Defenders. I'm off to probably save Asgard or something. Isaac and Dolly, who had just swung by Val's room to see what all the hubbub was about, are like, Oh, um, okay. Bye, Val. H have fun. Valkyrie is transformed into a beam of light and shoots off to Asgard. 
Goodbye, Valkyrie! Later that night, Beast and Iceman are hanging out in the bathroom watching Gargoyle take a bath for some reason. The three heroes are cracking wise and horsing around. Eventually, Hank and Bobby get tired of watching Isaac bathe and race each other down the stairs. The two pals are incautious in their competition and end up literally running into Overmindy at the base of the staircase. Overmindy is like, Uh, hey guys! Dolly mentioned that you were all going out to dinner later, and I was, um, wondering if I could come too, and also maybe if you could pay for my meal. I'll totally get you back later. Iceman and Beast confer for a minute, then Bobby is like, Hey, no problem, Owen. I gotcha. Any nine-foot-tall friend of Hank's who can crush a planet with their thoughts is a friend of mine. Overmindy is like, Sweet! Can I get an appetizer, too? Bobby is like, don't push it. That night, Isaac, Bobby, Hank, Overmindy, and Dolly get dressed up real nice and go out to eat at a Middle Eastern restaurant slash jazz club. The distinctive-looking quintet is laughing it up and having a grand time when Hank's girlfriend Vera walks in with a couple of her friends. Vera sees Hank and is like, what the fuck? Hank is like, oh, shit. We were supposed to have a date tonight, weren't we? Vera is like, yeah, we were, and you stood me up. Again. Dipshit. When you didn't call, I decided to distract myself from how worried I was about you by going out with a couple of friends. See, you've got me trained to assume that whenever you ditch me, it's probably because you're off risking your life to save the world, but you're just here partying. You know what? Fuck you. Hank is like, no, no, Vera, you don't understand. It's not that I didn't want to see you, I just kind of forgot you existed is all. Vera's like, well, tell you what, as far as you're concerned, I don't anymore. I'm gonna walk my fine Velma from Scooby-Doo looking ass out of this comic and your life. She storms off. Once she's gone, Beast is like, man, what's her problem? All I did was constantly take her for granted. Overmindy is like, Beast, it seems like something is bothering you. Something more important to you than the fact that you just broke the heart of a totally rad librarian who loved you. Beast is like, Yeah. Getting dumped by old What's-Her-Face just reminded me that what I really care about is being on a superhero team. I loved being an X-Man, and I loved being an Avenger. Overmindy is like, well, now you're a defender. That's pretty good too, isn't it? Beast is like, yeah, I guess. But it's not a real team. I mean, it basically is, but everyone keeps saying it isn't, so maybe it's not? Plus, there's no official leader. Dolly Donahue is like, Look, if you want the defenders to be a team, make it a team. Hell, start calling yourself a leader if you want. I don't give a shit. I'm old and I'm drunk. Isaac is like, I'm old and I'm drunk. Let's dance, Dolly. Isaac and Dolly dance around for a while. At some point, Ike's wings tear through the back of his suit, but he's such a good dancer that none of the patrons give a shit that he's a terrifying monster. The whole time he and Dolly are cutting a rug, Beast is staring into his wine glass, repeating the phrase, Make it a team. To himself. So, my guess is, 
either Hank is going to take over the defenders and impose some stricter rules, or at some point during his time in the X-Men, Magneto used his magnetic powers to hypnotize Beast and turn him into a sleeper agent, which is totally a thing that magnet powers can do in the Marvel Universe, and Dolly Donahue just activated him by using the phrase, Make it a team. In which case, he's probably going to assassinate Professor X. Although, seeing as how Charles Xavier has died well over a dozen times, assassinating him at any given time is either impossible or redundant. So, Beast is probably better off taking over the Defenders and imposing some stricter rules. The end. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, what do you think was the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off? Hmm. The cost of admission to answering this question is high. How so? Well, first of all, you gotta believe that there's a devil. Okay, okay, fair enough. And that, uh, he or she, or it, or they, or whatever is tricky. Do you think there's a chance that there is a devil and they aren't tricky? Well, what if it's like, I don't know, some powerful figure, say a president, that's a total fucking idiot. And okay. there's a bunch of people around the devil that want to get shit done that use it as a, a patsy. Is a patsy the right term? A cat's paw? Yeah, I, I think more a cat's paw than a patsy in that particular scenario. Although I would argue that whoever is pulling the strings would be the devil. Okay. So, I guess then it's Bela Lugosi getting all those movies made, because he famously said, Pull the string! Okay, that's the greatest trick the devil ever... No. Pulled off. No. Was the making of... Was that Glenn or Glenda? I don't know. I think that was Glenn or Glenda. Okay. It's either that or Plan 9 from Outer Space, which I don't think he was in, but... He was in the very beginning of it, and then they got Edward's dentist, who looked a little bit like him, but not really, to finish the scenes. Yeah, so it's it's between the two of those, or aspartame? Is that the... Is that how you say it? Is that a, a sugar substitute? It's a fake sugar, yeah. Yeah. Might be saying it wrong. What, what's it in? Uh, like tab? Nutrisweet. Oh, okay. Yeah, that stuff's gross. Mm -hmm. So it's between those three things. I'm gonna say it's either... That thing where you unscrew a shower head and then put a bullion cube in it, and then the person's showering in soup. Pretty good trick. Oof. Or the illusion of free will. Oh. Yeah. Wait. So if free will's an illusion, then what is the driver behind putting all those bullion cubes and all those shower heads? The devil made me do it? I guess. I don't know. What a jerk. What a waste of bullion. <laughs> It's pretty funny, though. It is funny. You want to talk about this comic book? Yeah. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? It's come up a lot that some of our favorite issues of these comics are ones where we observe the characters in their non-superheroing life. Mm -hmm. And... There was a lot of fun stuff going on with the kind of domestic sort of hanging out. There was some less fun elements to it also. But overall, I'd say I, I give it a thumbs up. 
Yeah, overall, I think I enjoyed it as well. I also, as we've discussed, yeah, do like these smaller moments in the books. And this is a book that is comprised of not necessarily smaller moments, because some pretty big decisions and events happen in this, but not super heroic ones. That being said, I don't know, I feel like this is an issue where you can kind of see the machinery at play in it. Like, this is an issue where they need to get certain pieces off of the board and other pieces onto the board, and I feel like it's done without a ton of subtlety. We used to have a category on this show, the I Just Gotta Be a Sucker" mm -hmm. category, and a lot of characters in this book act like suckas, where they make decisions that are plot necessary that are not necessarily character motivated. You know what I mean? I do indeed. And I found that a little bit frustrating. It does seem a little bit rushed. It seems like between this issue and the last issue, there is a real push to, okay, we got to clean up this storyline, not necessarily in the way I intended, and we got to clear the board to start the next thing. Again, it seems like not necessarily in the way that had been intended. It does set up some big things, and I am excited to see where the book goes next. It just is a little bit ham-fisted in how it gets there. Also, selfishly, I'm, like, on one hand, glad one of my lesser favorite characters is gone, and that's Son of Satan, but the fact that he and Patsy are gone together bums me out because she was one of my favorites. Yeah, I'm gonna really miss Patsy. I was also surprised that Val is kind of written out pretty quickly at this point, too. In my mind, she stuck around a little bit longer, so maybe that gets undone pretty soon. But it looks like she's out of the book. Patsy and Son of Satan are gone, which, yeah, I have pretty mixed feelings about. It also just seems like it is a bad decision for both of them to get married right away. It's a bad decision for anybody to get married really quickly. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it works out, but especially the way this is set up, where you get a few issues where, even from Son of Satan's viewpoint, he was just going through this existential crisis where he mentioned in a previous book, I've spent my whole life fighting the dark soul inside of me and haven't really had time to figure out who I am. And so he's like kind of adrift. And then the dark soul, as of the very end of the last issue, is totally gone from him. It would seem like that problem would be exacerbated at that point. He would have even less of an idea of who he is. But instead, he now is completely fine with going off, starting a new life with a person that he has been infatuated with for a very long time. But from her perspective, she doesn't know this Damon, and he doesn't know himself. And that is a really dangerous time to start a relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's a bad analogy, not really a comparison, but it's bad in the same way it is when couples are trying to sort things out and so they think the way to fix the sorting out is to add more complication like, like a kid or a let, puppy or something yeah or let's get married and yeah it feels like a bad move and it also just feels very very abrupt like this is essentially when they would be starting dating and that they are starting their dating by getting married it's a trope you see in a lot of fiction because that's how things have to end like every sitcom has to end with a wedding and I feel like their role on the show, well, if they're not on the show anymore, they were kind of starting to have the beginnings of a romance, so you end that with a wedding. But 
it's a bit much. And I would also think that Patsy would specifically be a bit more gun shy about getting married because she had such a bad first marriage. So I don't know. Seems like a lot pretty quick. I will say I was glad that they finally went to the patisserie. I was just going to comment on that, too. I was like, when I read that, I was like, oh, finally, Damon made up for his we can't look at a Claire's we have to go talk about me scene. Mm-hmm. And then I got to the, oh, and now we're going to go get married. And I was like, that's not enough. You can't just buy one box of pastries and make everything okay. You have to buy a lot more pastries than that. And also maybe make some risotto. Yeah. Like, make your own risotto instead of just knocking it out of pregnant ladies' hands. He has a lot of amends to make. That being said, it does really seem like he is a totally different person at this point, both physically as well as tonally, which, I mean, is good given the person that he used to be, but it is also weird because the person that he used to be is allegedly the person that Patsy fell in love with, and now he's not that person anymore. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, not crazy about that development overall, but glad he went and got some pastries. I feel like usually there's this idea that you know there's something unique about the complexities that humans have like there's justice which is pretty much black and white but then there's you know kind of a spectrum of like heroes that are like totally good guys getting into anti-heroes and whatnot Mm -hmm. and this puts too neat of a bow on it right to be like here's all the negative qualities yep we just took them and put them in that snake back in indonesia (laughs) yep that's how you get trigons that's right. Yeah, he just made a snouting asshole snake, and now it's off running around in Indonesia. Damn. Story done. All right, that's a good point. That is how you get trigons. Mm-hmm. Do that a few more times. You're going to have yourself a big, four-eyed, crotch-curtained bad guy. Uh-huh, just filling your Titan Tower with <laughs> demon shit. <laughs> Man, if people have never listened to the show before, let alone the episodes where we've discussed all those things... Yeah, you just gotta let it wash over you, Corey. (laughs) Welcome to the party. Another thing that gets, I think, maybe a slightly too neat bow tied on top of it is Miracle Man. They're just gonna let him stay at the monastery. He's fine. Don't worry about him. This is a guy who did what amounts to a genocide. He killed a whole tribe of magic Native Americans who lived in a cave. Yeah, now they're ghosts in another universe who still have nigh-omnipotent powers, but you can't just kill people and then be like, yeah, but now he found God, so he's just gonna live on this monastery. Never mind the fact that he tried to do a world conquer yesterday. Yeah. This guy does not have a good track record. No, it's the same thing as with Damon, too, right? You just take all the bad shit and put, mm-hmm. it, put it somewhere. No thanks. No thank you. I was very happy with one thing that happened in this comic book, though. We are introduced to the newest member of the Defenders, and I'm really, really excited about this. I think it's a character that's going to play a large role on the team going forward. I'm talking, of course, about Sassafras. Oh, that was charming. I love that dog so much. Yeah. We just meet it. We know nothing about it except for that it shits everywhere. But it's a cute puppy. And Beast playing with that puppy is, I think, the one good thing that Beast does in this issue. Him interacting with Iceman is pretty cute. He wears some nice clothes. He wears a lot of nice clothes. But I have a lot of issues with what he is up to in this comic. But 
Sassafras, A+. A+. And what a cute name for a dog because its nickname is Sassy. It's pretty good. I have never met a dog or heard of one named Sassafras of you. I don't think I have, which is surprising. Do you know the song Sassafras? Mm, I don't know. It's a song that I grew up thinking was a, like, standard folk song that children knew. Like an old McDonald or a bingo. Mm -hmm. It's, so tell all the neighborhood boys, I'm the one making all the noise. Cause a little cup of tea knocked the heart out of me, and that cup of tea was sassafras. No, I don't know that one. Okay, it turns out almost nobody does. I thought it was a super common song. It turns out that was a 1966 song by a band called the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. Whoa. That... I guess my parents must have played at one point, and I decided belonged in the same genre as, like, Old MacDonald. It's a good song, but, yeah, not what I thought it was. Man, is sassafras used to make sarsaparilla? I think it's a different thing. I think sarsaparilla is made of sarsaparilla root. Uh-huh. But I could be totally wrong about that. I think sassafras is used to make a tea. Uh, but I am getting all of that from those song lyrics. So, oh, okay. I don't know. Yeah, no, we should consult a more reliable mm. source like the internet. Were there any songs like that or things like that as a kid that you thought were much more universal than it turned out that they were? Um, you know, I guess other than having a composting toilet and lack of running water and one television channel and uh, drinking a lot of uh, Celestial Seasonings Pelican Punch Tea with extra honey, <laughs> uh, eating carob. <laughs> Yeah, that's all normal shit, Lentil, though, right? walnut burgers. <laughs> yeah, I said that weren't general pop culture things. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, we both had normal childhoods. <laughs> I thought so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Sassafras the Puppy is a goddamn delight. I loved the introduction of the character. Good name for a dog, too. Very cute. Apparently, that is the name of the puppy that J.M. DeMatteis got around this time. So he, he wrote Sassafras into the book. And Aww. high marks for that. Yeah, because it was done with great affection, I mm -hmm. feel like. The other new Defender that is introduced in this book is Iceman. What did you think of his uh, Defender's debut? Pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, li I like he just comes right in and punches Beast in the ding-dong <laughs> with this big ice thing, and they have a little wrestle, and then uh, there's uh, all the boys hanging out in the bathroom <laughs> having a bubble bath hangout yeah giving gargoyle some tub time weird but cute yeah it was i really enjoy the dynamic between beast and Iceman. it reminds me a lot of the kind of interplay between blue beetle and booster gold that jm demateus wrote a few years after this in the justice league international books it's fun banter between occasionally comedic side characters I think it's a smart thing to do with Iceman. He had a weird role in the X-Men where he was one of the original five X-Men, but he was like the little brother of the team. Mm. Like he was the youngest member. And he and Beast, I think, had kind of a similar relationship in that, where a lot of the early issues of the book were set up as a kind of love triangle between Angel and Cyclops and Marvel Girl. And then they were the two kind of goofballs, cracking wise on the outside of that. Mm-hmm. And they've had a friendship that's gone on a while, and you get that feel. They have a very lived-in, very comfortable relationship, and I like it. I like it, too. It's fun. There's a scene in which they are uh, sitting on just this enormous pile of fan mail. Mm -hmm. 
just shooting their shit, hanging out, having a laugh. Trying to avoid piles of dog shit that are in the uh, apartment. Yeah. yeah, heartwarming. Yeah, good stuff. I talked about Beast doing a lot of shit in this comic that pissed me off, and he really did. I think one of the main things is something that we are supposed to see as a positive that he is doing. That he wants to remake the Defenders to his own specifications. And I understand the narrative reason to do that. They want to take the book in a different direction. They, I think, feel that the conceit that it is a non-team rather than a team has kind of run its course. But I really did bristle at the idea of him coming in and changing all of the things that made him want to join the Defenders in the first place. And it's like he's gentrifying the team, you know? It, like That's what's happening in this book. The X-Men are coming in with Beast and Iceman, and I think pretty soon we're going to get Angel too. And they're being like, oh, this new team's really great, but we'll just make some tweaks to it to make it more comfortable for us. And they're getting rid of all of the touches that made it unique and its own. Like, Defenders are going to end up having to eat $15 burritos that have sunflower seeds in them. Bullshit. Yeah. No, I, I get that. I That said, I can, like, devil's advocate my own experience. Because superheroing is work, too, right? Mm-hmm. So it reminds me of leaving, you know, a corporate job, going to a startup job, and just being, oh, this is great, man, no red tape. And a week later, just being like, you guys need some rules. <laughs> I can get that. I do appreciate the need for rules. But, I don't know. It, it wasn't the only thing that Beast was doing that I found frustrating in this issue. I find his relationship with Vera really frustrating. And clearly she does too. He's what being a fucking, a fucking dick. What a weenie, man. Yeah. Like... You know, I don't know, maybe there's stuff going on that we don't know about and it's more complicated, but if you totally space out and stand somebody up and they come find where you're at to be like, yo, you stood me up, just being like, oh, whatever. Yeah, he tries and, to and turn then, it around and be like, well, I'm just really busy lately. It's it's not my fault. And then the you know, your partner, you know, is like, fuck this, I'm out. That's your opportunity to move towards repair, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, I'm just going to drink the rest of this Chianti. <laughs> hang out with my friends like that's a just kind of a lack of it it shows that it is a bad relationship and i think we are supposed to see that it is a bad relationship but he is still the bad guy in this like he has basically said like oh i was only with her because it was comfortable as i was making a transition and i guess it's good that he recognizes that and i mean people have relationships that are like that i certainly have and was the bad guy in that and I was reading about me in that situation, I'd be like, that fucking dick. Mm-hmm. But still, that fucking dick. Yeah. He's got a rad fucking hot librarian who dresses like Velma from Scooby-Doo, and he's just throwing it all away. Taking it for That's, granted. It's frustrating. Ah. He is also new to the house, and while I do appreciate him having the new dog, he needs to be a little bit more on it about cleaning up the dog's messes. And a little bit more clear with his instruction, because he's telling Sassafras to go on the paper, and then he brings in 15 bags of fan mail and expects her not to pee and poop on that. Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know, I guess this was a while ago, and the whole, like, don't yell at your dog to train it thing is relatively new. Mm -hmm. I don't know when that started in terms of dog training circles, but... 
yeah, it's frustrating. Like you, you didn't give clear requirements, mm-hmm. and you need to pick up this cute little animal and wave your finger in its face and yell at it. It's probably just gonna get nervous and pee. Yeah, and that's gonna be tough for him to get out of his fur, which he deserves. That's right. As frustrated as I was with Beast, though, he looked great in this issue. The art in general in this issue looked great. We have a new inker. It is Kim DeMolder, and Kim DeMolder is going to be the inker going forward as part of the regular art team. I think pretty much for the duration of the series, which I'm pretty stoked about because the art in this issue looks great. And I think it is going to be Perlin and DeMolder pretty much till the end. There are going to be some fill-in issues and some fill-in little bits, but uh, I loved the art and specifically... I loved how Beast looked. Yeah, Beast was rendered really nicely. And for the most part, I agree with you. There were some of the ways that uh, especially uh, Dolly Donahue was drawn at the end. It kind of looked like her face was melting a little bit. Yeah. That got a little weird. It did. I understand what you're saying. I think probably being a comic book artist, you are less used to drawing older people. Uh, It just doesn't come up very much, certainly with the protagonists in comic books, so maybe there's a learning curve on that. But you're you're right. Dolly is not drawn the best in this. She's not, but there are a couple scenes where her expressions and her emotion is captured really well when uh, Patsy comes in and drops the, hey, we're getting married and we're leaving at noon bomb on everybody. That kind of sideways, side-eye that Dolly gives her is, Mm -hmm. like, you can really catch the, what the... married (laughs) yeah there's a really nice scene where you see close-up panels of each of the people in the room as that announcement is being made and they all have really different really individual reactions to it in a way that really makes sense the most obvious ones being dolly being like suspicious and disapproving and valkyrie being what the fuck and not dealing with it particularly well Like, I understand her reaction, but her lack of talking it out or engaging with the situation at all, I think kind of makes sense for the character, but kind of unfortunate. I don't know, I feel some affinity there. I think that Norse gods and New Englanders are similarly socialized (laughs) to deal with emotion. Fair enough. I'm gonna go be mad over here, quietly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was another character, though, that... I think would be in pretty strong contention for the I just gotta be a sucker prize for how quickly she is like, Odin? Oh, of course, I will come do whatever you tell me to. You don't even need to tell me what the problem is. I'll be right there. When we saw her have that like really hard, really difficult conversation with him where she's like, I love you, but all is not forgiven and we're gonna have to approach this relationship on new footing now. And now it's like, well, I need to get out of this book. So, okay, here we go. I can see her fleeing from what she sees as a bad situation after Patsy is gone. But it seemed like there was more to the situation than that. And I was wondering if we were supposed to be picking up on, like, I don't know, some subtextual sexual tension between the two. Like, were you seeing Valkyrie feeling rejected in that way from Patsy? Or no. Because I might be reading more into it because I know that in comics nowadays, Valkyrie has come out as being bisexual. So I might be reading subtext that was not intended into it, but I think the way that she pivots from 
Patsy rejected me, and now I have nothing, except maybe Namor, and goes immediately into romantic relationships that she would have as options now that Patsy's gone. I don't know. Were you seeing any of that or not really? No, it didn't occur to me. I mean, it, it could be, right? Yeah. But also, I was just more so thinking, you know, she's kind of got this stranger in a strange land thing and she had this best friend ever. Mm -hmm. and, and they had just come to a new understanding that like, no, I, I know things have changed, but now I'm more me than I've ever been. And our relationship is very important to me. And they both agreed on that. And then, okay, bye. I found a new guy. And just the suddenness of it too. Like, I remember like when, when I got married all those years ago and you know, that, mm -hmm. in retrospect was not a great decision. But you'll remember, I showed up on my flying horse at the last minute and said, Farewell, Corey, with tears in my eyes. You did, you did. But before that, you were a little pissed off. <laughs> Should have listened to you. <laughs> yeah, that dark soul wasn't all the way out of her. So we get, I guess, maybe a slight forwarding of the Elf with a Gun ongoing bullshit. <sighs> What'd you think of that little interlude? I guess he summoned all of the original Defenders, including occasional original Defender Silver Surfer, to go to the tribunal thing. Yeah, good trick, whatever. I don't know. I picked this issue up, I looked at it, and I was like, awesome co- Ugh. Yeah. I literally made, a, made that, like, <laughs> noise it is super epic looking but yeah in the foreground of it there is the silhouette of elf with a gun and it's like oh geez it took me several minutes to notice beast holding that puppy that's how put off i was by seeing elf with a gun yeah uh that said it was short it was clever you know is this your first exposure to smart hulk in comic books i think so yeah that was weird yeah, he's been that way for, I think, a little bit over a year at this point. He had some gamma radiation that made him have Bruce Banner's intelligence in the Hulk's body. The weird thing about it is he is still wearing the unintentional jorts, which, with the Hulk, it makes sense. If he's like, oh, I can't control this transformation, then you get it. But if it's an intentional transformation, and Bruce Banner, who generally, I think, would be prepared for contingencies, Makes you wonder whether those purple jorts are unintentional or if it is just totally a fashion choice. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm on the fence about Smart Hulk. I mean, I don't want to pigeonhole or whatever. You're not supposed to. I guess that's bad. But I kind of like Hulk Smash Hulk. I like Hulk Smash Hulk, too. I think it's a more interesting character if he has that not just limitation, but just different personality. And and I think most people feel the same way, which is why you whenever you do get the smart Hulk, it's a temporary thing, and you usually end up going back to original brand the Hulk. Mm. But yeah, this is the Hulk that first showed up in Secret Wars, which came out about a year from now, and uh, I don't know. It's fine. You know that there are Hulk-sized suits, though, because you see Overmindy wearing one at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. So... Gotta say, kind of bad job, Bruce Banner, if you don't want to wear the purple jorts. Maybe there's still some hulky part of his brain that's just like, no, this is this is what we wear. Like, you took away my rage, but you can't have my jorts. Hmm. Poetic. 
well, that's Bruce Banner. It's very, you know. He's very Uriadite. Yeah, yeah it's a good way with words. It may also be a psychological thing. Like, the part of the intimidation of the Hulk is his strength, but also part of it is that you know that he is uh, filled with uncontrollable rage. So if he shows up like that, he is perhaps more intimidating to potential evildoers. Mm -hmm. Or Steve. Yeah. No, ripped jorts are far more intimidating than a nicely cut suit. Depending on the suit, I gotta say. Because, uh... Gargoyle, I mean, this will come up in the sartorially speaking, but he's wearing like a gangster suit. And uh, it's pretty badass looking with the pinstripes and everything. Double breasted. I don't know that that sort of gangster suit has the same sort of intimidation these days as it did in the, what, I don't know, 1930s? I think early 80s it probably would have still more. No? Really? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I ever saw anybody wearing a suit until I was like, 30. <laughs> like in real life? Yeah. I used to love watching those old Bruce Lee movies, and mm -hmm. you know, sometimes the bad guys would have suits. Yeah, that was pretty, pretty tough. Uh -huh. Or jorts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other weird thing about Elf with a Gun summoning the OG Defenders is why? Like, if he's Elf with a Gun, it would make more sense to me if he were fixated on the Defenders that were around when he was around. You know, it should be like the Gerber era defenders. So Son of Satan and Power Man and Valkyrie and Nighthawk, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a podcaster that I listen to sometimes likes to say uh, an indeterminate amount of comic book time ago. Mm. And I feel like there's just a real lot of that in this where, yeah, if you think about the continuity and like the sequential order of events... Maybe it doesn't hold up, but I don't know. It's not a little elf brain of his. He's not going to be doing that. Fair enough. It also does occur to me, I don't know that Elf with a Gun ever met the Defenders. I don't think he did, did he? He just appeared and would shoot random passers-by and then eventually got run over by a truck, which is where I think the character should have ended. But uh, yeah, he never actually met the Defenders before, did he? This would be their first time encountering Elf with a Gun. Yeah, I think he's just following uh, tribunal orders. Okay. Still, what a stupid little jerk. Yeah, fuck that guy. Boo! Boo. There were some fun little touches in this book that I really enjoyed. Uh, as much as I was generally displeased with Beast's behavior, Sassafras aside, I thought it was interesting, although also not a great move that he did the uh, no-soap radio gag on Damon Hellstrom, which I had to look up. Yeah, I had to look up no-soap radio. So, no-soap radio, it turns out, is the punchline to a 1950s, I don't know, joke slash prank slash social experiment slash Dadaist humor movement thing, where the setup would be Something like, so a hippo and an elephant are taking a bath, and the hippo turns to the elephant and says, can I get some soap? And the elephant says, no soap, radio. And then you laugh. Well, then I'm presented with two choices. Mm -hmm. One is to be like, what the fuck, I don't get it. Uh -huh. And the other is to be like, ha ha ha, yeah. you know, good, I want to fit in, so I'm going to laugh at you. Right. I think it has to be done with two people. Like, it would be the person telling the joke and then another person who would also pretend that they got the joke and laugh at it. And then the third person would either 
have to say that they didn't get the joke or pretend that they did get the joke. At which point, the two people that are pranking, if they say they didn't get it, then you make fun of them for not getting the joke, which is the point where I think the joke becomes really a dick move rather than a social experiment. Because I get if the person plays along and says like, oh yeah, I get it. No soap radio, good one. I think there you've got something, you know? Like that's okay. That is kind of funny that this person did that. And you can make fun of them for that if you want to. But the making fun of them for not getting the joke that can't be gotten, at that point, you're just gaslighting them. You're just being a dick. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a jerk. It's a jerky move. Yeah, but I did think it was interesting, and it was interesting learning about that and how prevalent, I guess, it was. There was also apparently a 1982 sitcom starring Steve Gutenberg called No Soap Radio. That sketch. was sketch, sketch comedy slash sitcom, it said. Uh, I've never seen it, so I don't know what it was, but uh, kind of curious about it. Yeah, you like yourself some young Gutenberg. Mm-hmm. Vintage. I was thinking that if I ever did have a podcast that was about getting to know Steve Gutenberg's canon better, I would call it Up to No Goot. Like, you're getting up to no K-N-O-W. Goot, uh, like st- short for Gutenberg. I think that would be pretty good. <laughs> uh, listeners can't see me shaking my head, but I think they can feel it. Yeah. The other thing that Beast says that I had to kind of look up was at one point he calls Iceman Rhyme Breath. Mm-hmm. I had to look up uh, what rhyme was. Yeah, me too. Like, not rhyme, like the word, but like a... R-I-M-E, like yeah. Rhyme of the Ancient Sea Mariner. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share what you learned? Yeah, it's uh, just getting frosty, you know? Yeah, it's like uh, like sublimation of ice particles onto a very cold surface. Yeah, like a hoarfrost. H-O-A-R. Mm. Frost. Pretty good. Yeah. So, I learned something. You learned two things. Whoa, a new record. <laughs> hey, hey. Now I'm going to have to forget two things. Oh, no problem. What do you think I should forget? Um, Maybe the lyrics to Sassafras? No, I need those. They're pretty good. Yeah, no, and it's your popular culture knowledge will be incomplete mm. without those. Maybe I could forget the Bippy Bopka's song from that episode of Perfect Strangers. Yeah, that wouldn't hurt you. Lord knows I would like to forget that. Mm-hmm. It's been in there for so long. I didn't even like that show. Oh, man, I think I really liked it as a kid, but I don't think it's good. I recently had a discussion with Lisa about how I know a lot about the show Reba, which was Reba McIntyre's sitcom, because it just happened to be on when there were only four channels and I worked nights. And I ended up watching a lot of Reba, even though I have no feelings about that show whatsoever. Is there a show like that for you? There's gotta be, but... I have the gift of forgetting. (laughs) Ah, you're so lucky. Thank you. Well, you want to move into the minutiae? Let's. Okay, I feel like there should be some kind of a forgetting things segue to make there, but I can't think what it would be. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting us off with? Do you want to talk about artwork? Sure. Corey, what was your favorite panel in this comic? There was a scene that, though I didn't really like what was going on, I liked the way that it was depicted, and it's, uh, I called it Sad Hank, 
and it's the one after he's mean to Vera, and he's just sitting there looking bummed out, clutching a bottle of wine by himself. Mm-hmm. It's really well drawn. It is really well drawn. My favorite panel, I think by a pretty wide margin, is also a panel of Hank, but it is on page three, and it is the close-up of his face where he is playing with Sassafras. We have not yet met Sassafras, but he's saying, help, somebody, please help, and you see this claw in front of his face. It is Sassafras's paw, but it is a close-up of Hank's face, and it is so cool-looking. It is. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot, too. I love that panel, and then I love the reveal after that, that it is, in fact, him playing with a puppy and pretending that she's getting him. Mm -hmm. It's a really cute scene. It's a really fun panel. It is. When I saw those two, I thought to myself, I wonder what that that puppy's experience of playing with somebody that is furry is like. It's got to be different. And there's also been like later iterations of Hank where it kind of emphasizes and makes him look more feline. So I'm wondering if, like, he has that kind of, like, scent to the dog, too. Mm -hmm. It's uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Something to think about. I think at this point he's supposed to be more ape-like, though. So it would be more like a Coco and uh, her kitten type of situation. So, uh, like, uh, yeah, Sassafras is a real all-ball in this. Mm -hmm. Pretty cute. I think my other favorite panel is on page 15, and it's one that I call Disco Val. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And it is Val turning into a beam of light and shooting off to Asgard. It is a goofy scene, and like I said, her exit from the book seems a little bit rushed. But uh, it is a really cool, shiny panel of her turning into electricity. And I liked it a lot. Quite an exit. Mm-hmm. Any other panels you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I had a runner-up. We sort of talked about it already, and it's on page five. And it's the side-by-side of all the faces of the characters reacting to the news that Patsy's getting married and leaving. Mm-hmm. It reminded me almost of some pop art where there's solid different colors in the background. Mm. You know, like make a cool piece of, I don't know, street art or something. Like if you saw that on the side of a building. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Well, I always like a good ding-dong. <laughs> Who doesn't? You know, in Canada, they're called king-dongs? Yeah, that's so dumb. It just sounds like it's a giant penis. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> it's like, I mean, ding-dong sounds like a penis already, but then they're like, no, 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 we, we gotta change that. We'll fix it. Don't worry. And they just made it sound like a bigger dick. <laughs> I mean, I guess good for you, Canada. You know what you like. Mm-hmm. So you just need a doorbell now that says, King Dong. Yeah, we're just big dick. <laughs> but yeah, Ding Dong's a good sound effect. I think my favorite was the clunk of Iceman and Beast running into Overmindy as they are coming up the stairs. It was just a fun scene. And having the letters look like they were kind of bouncing off Overmindy's armored chest as well was an interesting technique. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I had that as my runner-up. Very good. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, which hero do you think did the best and which did the worst? (sighs) The obvious choice for worst is Beast. Agreed. But I haven't seen Steve for a while. And mm-hmm. I kind of misgiven him the worst. And he's kind of a dick to Wong. He's sitting there meditating. Wong goes, it's like, hey, I'm super sorry, but people are here. 
And Steve is like, I gave you strict orders to leave me. Why does it sound like Bill Cosby? Yeah, I don't know. That's creepy. Yeah. Don't give your friend slash manservant strict orders. That's mean. Yeah, it's a dick move. Boo. Boo. He's being a real king dong there. Yep. I agree. Steve was a dick. I had my backup as being Iceman, though. Overall, I liked him in this comic book. But he does a couple of things that, as a guest, are pretty shitty things to do. Pretty inconsiderate. One of them is, hey, you're staying at a house where a elderly woman lives. Maybe don't ice up the stairs for no goddamn reason. When he sprints down the stairway, he turns it into an ice slide. Which, yeah, Beast is going to be fine, but Dolly lives there too. Come on. Mm -hmm. The other thing that he does is when he busts open the door and punches uh, Hank right in the King Dong with his ice beam, he leaves the door open. And there is a young puppy in that house. Ooh, dangerous. Yeah, you don't want you don't want Sassafras running out into the streets of New York. Yeah, there's one other thing. I don't know if you're going to comment on it, but when Vera shows up to confront Beast in the restaurant, mm -hmm. and they're all sitting there, Iceman does that kind of under his breath, like, because she just comes in and is like, you know, what the heck, Hank? And he's like, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so. Nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's like, that's not the time to do that kind of joking around. Yeah. He does not know when to not joke around. I described him earlier as being the kind of little brother on the X-Men team in the original lineup. And I think he comes off better, certainly, than this character. But it is a kind of, I think, similar vibe to, like, Beast Boy. Where some of the comic relief comes off a little bit bad when they are expressly making him more immature than the characters around him. And I think that may be a little holdover from that. Mm-hmm. So that's the bad news. What about the good news? For my best defender, I had Overmindy. I found Overmindy really charming in this issue. I like that they took off their helmet and kept it off for the whole time. Definitely a step in the right direction. Realizing that that thing came off and being like, Hey, I don't need to wear this giant, dumb scarab helmet all the time. And I think they stopped doing their beard in weird little flame curls, too. Which... Definitely a step in the right direction. I also really appreciated the, like, vulnerability of, I don't know, I mean, it's not something I would probably do, but I appreciate that they invited themselves along and were kind of bashful about it and recognized that things cost money, which nobody seems to do in this. And were like, hey, uh, can I go out to eat with you guys? I, I don't have any money, but I'll get you back. Maybe I'll... I don't know, lift a house for you or something. There was something I just found very sweet about Overmindy in this issue, and I really appreciated that. It's my backup, and it's a pretty long backup. Uh, I had Son of Satan for finally uh, getting those pastries. Uh, yeah, I had Overmindy for the same reasons. Oh, cool. I also liked how at dinner, I don't know, maybe it's being six psychics and somebody's body makes you a little different, but they sense that Beast has something on his mind, and... They they push a little bit, but not in a weird or mean way. Mm -hmm. They're like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Tell me how you really feel. Which I wouldn't appreciate, but oh, no. it's nice that they did that for their friend. No, I, I wouldn't appreciate, but there probably have been times when I would have needed it. Yep. Mm. 
What did you have as your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if that pie were not made out of steel? This one's pretty short and sweet. Right before Beast and Iceman race down the stairs, leaving that ice that you were unhappy about. Mm -hmm. I think it's Iceman says to Beast, last one down is Magneto's uncle. Yeah, I had that as one of my choices as well. There is some really fun banter between the two. Gargoyle basically says, Oh, you guys must have been real cut-ups at your old school together, huh? And taking a bath. Iceman goes, Cut-ups? Us? Why, Mr. Christians, we were the most mature, serious, studious young men ever cloistered behind the walls of academia. By the way, Hank, last one downstairs is Magneto's uncle. And then he changes into his ice gear, and that's when he ices down the stairs. But I thought that was a really cute scene. Also, Magneto's family tree is such a weird, curly Q spaghetti monster of a plant that there is a possibility that at least one of them is Magneto's uncle. Oh, man. My other favorite dialogue in this is also a bit of interplay between Beast and Iceman, and it is when Iceman first shows up, he basically kicks open the door, then does an ice punch to uh, Hank's Ghibli bits, and then says, All right, you hairy hunchback son of a gorilla, you've had it. And Beast says, Lay one hand on me, mister, and ow, ow. And Iceman says, Yo, what? And Beast says, I'll hop straight into your icy arms and kiss you. Come here, cutie, pucker up. That was an adorable scene. It was really cute. It was really sweet. It really reminded me of that one scene in Super Troopers. Where uh, the one guy says, if you were my son, I'd smother you. Smother me in gravy, you dirty man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Adorable. Yeah. This was a awfully big category for this issue, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this comic did you find most worthy of note? I got a bunch. Yeah, I, I got a bunch too, and, and I just condensed them to two kind of bullet points that we can maybe dive into. Okay. The first is the decor in Val's room. Yeah. Pretty cool. It's pretty badass. It is in some ways very, like, austere Viking shit. Oh, Nordic, right? Yeah. Yeah. But she also does have a stereo in there. Probably for listening to Led Zeppelin, I would imagine. Just immigrant song on repeat. Uh-huh. And yeah, she's got, like, the Norse god equivalent of a race car bed. Mm -hmm. It looks like her bed is like a Viking longboat, kind of. And she's got shields on the wall and stuff. It, it is really cool. It is also a little bit too small for her. If I, as, I don't know, an 11 or 12-year-old had walked into somebody's room and it looked like that, I would have been like, this is the coolest person. I would still probably think that. It's pretty badass. It is. In terms of decor... The other option to choose from in this book, I think, would be Steve's, I don't know, cookie crisp wizard drapes that he's got. <laughs> you see, for the first time, I think that the Sanctum has curtains that run around it like a fucking shower curtain that are festooned with stars and moons on a purple background, and it is very cartoon wizard. It reminds me of a Halloween costume that my friend uh, Jay, Osello, when he was a little kid, his mom made. And it was a wizard robe and hat, and mm -hmm. it was made out of the stars and moons. Yeah, it so. is very much a little kid wizard 
fabric. Yeah, pretty cute. Yeah. Other than that, for actual fashion, all of the outfits that are worn at the Middle Eastern restaurant at the end of the book are great. I loved seeing over Mindy in a suit. It looked badass. I liked the weird little design on the tie. Very, like, 80s Art Deco inspired. I loved Gargoyle's gangster look with the uh, double-breasted pinstriped suit. That after a certain point, he just lets his wings rip through because he's like, eh, what the fuck? And he uh, uses them to dance. Uh-huh. So cute. It was pretty cool. Beast wore some great clothes throughout the issue. In that scene, he's wearing, like, a purple cardigan with what looks like a tuxedo shirt under it. It's, like, almost a smoking jacket look, but not quite. And, like, purple, almost Birkenstocks. Mm-hmm. It made me think, because his fashion is kind of outlandish but cool-looking, that... Being a furry blue man probably does give you a pretty good lack of fucks to give about what people are thinking. Yeah, you, you would think. So you can wear purple Birkenstocks and a cardigan with a tux jacket and pull it off. Yeah, and you see earlier in the issue, he is also wearing baggy clothing, which I think makes sense given his furry body. But yeah, he's like wearing some cargo pants almost, it looks like, with like a brown, I don't know, like house jacket. I guess. Baggy shirt. It's mm -hmm. a cool look. I really enjoy it, but I don't really quite know how to classify it. Iceman is wearing some dope clothes throughout and very early 80s looking. He's got a vest and skinny tie at one point. At the end of the issue, he's got a nice purple sweatshirt that has the yellow stripe around the middle, like three quarters of the way up. It's cool looking, looked very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. I think there is a character-building wardrobe change that happens with Son of Satan, where now that he doesn't have the Dark Soul anymore, he starts wearing a sweater vest, a pink sweater vest, which I think is a pretty decent look for him, especially if he is trying to distance himself from the Son of Satan persona. Like, oh, when I was evil, I didn't wear anything to cover up my torso, so now I've got like six layers covering up my torso. That's how unevil I am. I think he looks great in this issue. He's got a, a long, fancy, I imagine, probably cashmere scarf mm -hmm. that he wears around, a, an overcoat, the sweater vest. He looks very dapper. He does. I, I think it's a good look for him. And then we got some decent bystander fashion as well. The main one that I want to comment on is the old society lady who has the glasses that you have to hold on with a stick. They're like opera glasses, I guess, but she's wearing like a coat with a fur ruff and a fur hat and is carrying a tiny dog with a bow tie on its head in her arms and is wearing white gloves and is watching the defenders get into a cab. She's not saying anything, but if she was saying anything, she would almost certainly be saying, well, I never. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she'd be clutching those pearls if her hands weren't full with the dog and the glasses. Mm -hmm. She's very, very well drawn as well. Mm -hmm. You know what, Corey? What? Let's have ourselves a Battle of the Band! Names. Corey, what band names were you able to find in this comic book? My first and maybe favorite one is the, um, I think they are like a really high-energy, fun punk pop band from Canada called the Fresh French Pastries. The Fresh French Pastries? Yep. That's pretty good. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I think you nailed it with, with what type of music they are. They're probably from Montreal. Mm-hmm. High energy pop punk. Yeah. Pretty good. I have as one of my choices Semblance of Normalcy. Oh, I think uh, they've been in the battle before. Have they? That sounds familiar. It does sound familiar. Maybe they have been in it before. Okay, then forget about them. Well, they can have another go. Okay, well, what kind of music do you think they are? Because I was thinking they would be like kind of standard bar band covers, but okay, what's the opposite of me first in the Gimme Gimmies? Like they do adult, they do adult contemporary covers of punk songs. Oh, okay, that like opposite, like the way the yeah. word actually means itself. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, no, opposite the, 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 the word actually means itself. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. The literal meaning of the word. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So it's like they're doing like a. Adult, like James Taylor esque covers of like "Let's Start a War" by The Exploited. Yeah, or like "They Saved Hitler's Brain" by Unnatural Acts. Uh-huh. There's some comedy in there. Yeah, potentially. And so I think that's what semblance of normalcy would be. Okay, I had uh, this one's kind of a mouthful, but the heinous crime of forgetting. Oh, sounds pretty good. It sounds deep, man. It sounds pretty artsy. Yeah, kind of French New Wave. Yeah, I don't know if I want to see him, but he's yeah. a name. Yeah, they're out there doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Probably got some turtlenecks. Uh-huh. Probably uh, was much like the West Coast Experimental Pop Art Band inspired by the Velvet Underground to start a band. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Assuredly. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good name. Thank you. My other choice, I think, is my favorite of mine, which is Rudely Shattered. Ooh. Which is a uh, goth ska. Of course it is. Yeah, he's got to work in the goth. Yeah, but is, doesn't that sound like that's what rudely shattered would be? Oh, sure. Like, you got the rudely, because, you know, they're rude boys. Yeah, of course. And then, you know, the shattered. I guess they could be new metal ska. Mm. That could be what shattered would be. Mm-hmm. Or, like, ska covers of Rolling Stones songs. Oh, because they're in tattered, sh 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 shattered mm-hmm. That's a dumb lyric. I'm a tatters! <laughs> it doesn't matter! It's like he, he our Christian Slater singing. <laughs> oh, it's not good. No, that that's exactly what that's Mick Jagger Mick, sounds Mick, to your ears. Mick Jagger sounds exactly like Christian Slater. Always has, always will. Oh, Open your a, mind, Corey. That's a shame. Yeah, I know. For who? You. Because that music is everywhere, and if that's what you hear every time it's on, that's gotta hurt your ears. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm in tatters. It's a silly lyric. It's a good song. Yeah, it's okay. So, of our options, what do you think is the best band name? We have Rudely Shattered. Uh huh. Let's say they're new metal ska. Okay. We have Semblance of Normalcy, mm-hmm. who do adult contemporary covers of punk rock songs. Mm-hmm. We have the Fresh French Pastries, mm-hmm. and the heinous crime of forgetting. Oh boy. Those are actually, I think, all pretty strong entries. They are. What's your favorite? I really don't like the idea of new metal ska, but well, then let's it's go got with... a good sound. I do think that Rudely Shattered is a pretty good name, but I think the Fresh French Pastries is pretty good. I would go see them. I would. It would be difficult to say. Yeah. But I think that's probably part of their selling point. Yeah. There was a local band here that was named Toy Boat, Toy Boat, Toy Boat. 
Corey is slowly shaking his head. It's a very Portland move to do that. It is. The ones that... Is it a fricative, the sound that starts with a f? I forget. Well, anyway, it's it's one of those band names that the more you drink, the harder it is to say without fucking it up. Yeah. So I think that's a good call. Mm-hmm. They're probably straight edge. <laughs> no, they're oh, not. They're on, from they're Montreal. Not they're not. How are they going to stay warm edge. in those right. cold winters? Good point. They're all hopped up on Molson. Yeah, it'd be fun. Eating yeah. some fresh French pastries? Yes. Also, making some uh, like telephone pole flyers of shows for the bands that have been in the Battle of the Band Names. Oh, that would be pretty fun. Do you remember when my band, The Buttery Lords, just made a bunch of flyers that we put up that just had a picture of a cowboy eating a, uh, eating, it's from an old Skoll ad, and he was eating Skoll chewing tobacco, but we relabeled the can of chewing tobacco poop and had him saying, The Buttery Lords can suck my dick. I do. We made up so many flyers that said that and put them everywhere, and there was no show and no action item for those. It's a guerrilla marketing. Mm-hmm. We just uh, created a poop-eating cowboy awareness in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's important. Yeah. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? The Hulk learned a rule from Beast's behavior in this issue, which Mm. is that wagging your finger in somebody's face or something's face and yelling to teach a lesson is never successful. I think that is a good lesson for the Hulk to learn. It's how Beast tries to get the dog not to poop on whatever he was pooping on. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you get a dog to learn something, but it's not that way. It's not that way. It is also not. I did at one point very exasperatedly say to Finley, I don't remember what I was even referring to, but said, Finley, use context clues. How'd that go? He didn't. Yeah, weird. She's being willful. Mm. But I think that's a good rule for the Hulk. The Hulk's other rule is one that he learned from Gargoyle in this issue, and that is strangers give way less of a shit about you than you think they do. Mm. Which is a lesson that I wish I could learn and really internalize. But you see, Gargoyle, throughout his life as a defender in the pages of these issues, has been covering himself up in either the traditional impenetrable disguise of a fedora and trench coat, or the twist on it where he was dressed up like Sendog to try to disguise his features before. And in this issue, he is dressed in a gangster outfit, double-breasted pinstripe suit that he has his wings tucked into, and then he has his bucket hat pulled way down low over his eyes. And then at a certain point, he just lets his wings rip through and is like, fuck it, these people don't actually give a shit. And you see, they applaud his dancing as he's flying around dancing. Strangers don't give a shit. They really just could not give less of a shit about what you're doing and what you are behaving like. So do what you want, man. I like it. There are so many moments that live in my head of me being like, oh god, I can't believe I said this. And I'm sure I'm the only person who remembers it. I think it's come up on the show before, but I I, I saw something somewhere on the internet where somebody said, when you're taking that shower and reliving all your cringy moments, 
everybody else that's involved in those cringy moments is taking a shower reliving their cringy moments mm-hmm. and they're not thinking about what it was that you said yeah so th- there's something really liberating about realizing that you're not that fucking important to most people yep and uh i think it's a good rule and it's the hulk's rule Well, Corey, I just have one more question I got to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, August, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So I think it's come up before that Wong is not only a fan of, but also a friend of John Carpenter, musician, director. Yeah, probably. And uh, through that relationship, he developed an interest in that we would now say 80s sounding heavy synth music. And when they first came out, had picked himself up a, a Prophet 5 synthesizer. Um, and they came out in 1978 from this company, Sequential Electronics, and uh, had been fascinated with the type of sounds that those instruments could make. And uh, yeah, John Carpenter used those a lot in his movies to do the music. Other musicians in the 80s used them too. Was that what a Goblin used? Goblin? Oh, the band. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. No, the goblin. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't know he was so musical. <laughs> Who's goblin? The green goblin. Oh, okay. I didn't realize you were on a first name basis with him, and then that name was his last name. Were you on a soccer team with him? Where they just like, all right, goblin, where to be? He called by his He's last just name. Just flying around. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he sounded, like the Willem Dafoe one, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So yeah, goblin likes him. Everybody likes these things. Anyway. You know, fast forward years later, it's the 80s, and the same company that produced these released the technical spec for the Musical Instrument Digital Interface, or MIDI, as, oh. it's, as it's commonly known. And Wong just did a, a deep dive into that and started hooking up all kinds of gear to his, uh, his synthesizer, and was just basically holed up in the room, reading the MIDI spec, and creating some, uh, some awesome multi-layered sounds with uh, all of his electronics. Nice. You know what Wong could have used? Huh. Mulligan by Refuse. Oh, that's true. It's, uh... Because he he likes his knobs, he likes his MIDI. Yeah, it's, uh, my friend invented this thing that he's selling. It's it's called Mulligan, and uh, it lets you plug any MIDI controller into Pro Tools and uh, do your uh, sound engineering that way. So... I think uh, Wong would have appreciated that. He sure would have. It would have saved him a shit ton of time. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have Pro Tools back then, so... He probably invented it. We just haven't gotten to that segment yet. <laughs> Good point. Well, that's one thing that Wong was doing in August of 1983, but it wasn't the only thing. You see, in addition to being friends with and a fan of John Carpenter's music, Wong also was friends with and a fan of the Ramones and their music. And August 1983 was a pretty rough time for at least one of the Ramones. On August 14th, Johnny Ramone was assaulted by a guy named Seth Macklin, who they got into an altercation, and uh, Seth Macklin beat the shit out of Johnny Ramone and uh, kicked him in the head. He required brain surgery. Didn't have any lasting brain damage from it, thankfully. But that happened on August 14th, and Wong didn't have the details of what had happened and was rightly upset and decided that he was going to use his powers to investigate and try to figure out what happened. Unfortunately, Steve decided he wanted to be helpful and tried to get in on the act as well. So that led to 
Steve and Wong stumbling around the streets of New York, and Steve questioning inanimate objects. He had maybe a little bit too much to make an incense <laughs> before he decided to hit the streets, and uh, at one point decided to play good cop, bad cop by himself with a lamppost. Oh, boy. And so he rolled up on this lamppost, and he's like, All right, lamppost, what are you knowing? And Carrie Fisher happened to be walking by and overheard this conversation and thought, Oh, this, uh, this guy must be a fan of my fiancé Paul Simon's work. Uh. <laughs> and she was uh, a bit in her cups at the time. So uh, that is why on August 16th, Wong and Steve attended the wedding of Carrie Fisher and Paul Simon. Whoa. Yeah. Marriage didn't last. But that's probably not Steve's fault. <laughs> that That's one I don't think we can blame on him. I don't think we can hang that on him. No. But that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in August of 1983. What a year. What a month. What a Wong. Well, Corey, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk about this comic book with me. You're welcome. We'll be back next week. Talk some new Titans. Uh, that'll be a nice time. Sure. And, uh... Yeah, in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at ttwasteland at gmail.com or at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. We're also up in uh, various places on the internet. You can find us on the Twitter, the Facebook, the Tumblr, the um, LinkedIn, uh, ccaptainsonly.com. You know, wherever you look in the internet. We're probably in there somewhere. But if you can't find us there, there's one more place you could look. And that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Oh, boy. I'm finally, finally just going to start doing on a regular basis the physical therapy I'm supposed to so my body doesn't hurt. Oh. So, I'm sorry. It's fucking boring. It's stupid. You know what's stupid? Huh. Are stupid bodies. Huh. It's the worst. I ate some fast food the other day. That was my whole day. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I, I had an impossible Whopper, and I was like, well, I want to take a nap. I can't take a nap. I have to do stuff. Mm -hmm. These are two things I disapprove of. Having to do stuff and our stupid aging bodies. <laughs> yeah, boo. Like, my body used to run, like, the, uh, the time machine at the end of Back to the Future. You just heap whatever garbage you have lying around <laughs> into it, and it'll run like a top. Yeah. Now it runs like a DeLorean, where the joints don't quite fit together, right? And it does. It's rusting and terrible and doesn't really go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't care for it. Nope. So I guess what you're saying is this week in people's hearts, we're, we're like the guys in the Muppet show who sit in the balcony. <laughs> Statler and Walter, yeah. <laughs> I'm also probably going to be having another impossible Whopper. It was pretty good. Oh, this time yeah. maybe I'll just take a nap, though. Yeah, those things are kind of amazing. Like, it tastes... It tastes pretty, like a Whopper. Like, it doesn't taste like a good burger, but it tastes like a fast food burger. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty good. Not bad. If you would like to help support the show financially, please do. You can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland and making a donation. Our donors get access to a bunch of exclusive material that is just for them, or you. That's right, it could be you. 
One of the things they get access to is the podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There are also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books and a bunch of other stuff up there, too. That's all there is. Uh, thank you for uh, making it possible for us to keep doing the show. So, thank you. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, ah, could they even do such a thing? Yeah, there's a couple ways. Easiest way probably is just leave a quick review wherever you got your podcast from. Yeah. Click the leave a review thing and say something like, I don't know, this makes my ears feel so damn good. Five stars? Sure. The other one is to uh, tell somebody about the show. What's an example of a person they could tell? Probably like if you get a, a delivery to your house. Yeah, just tell tell the delivery person. Yeah. Make sure they've got time. You, you don't want to, maybe let's slip them a note. Mm -hmm. Make sure it's not threatening. I don't know, some people have kind of aggressive handwriting that they don't realize, so instead of using your own handwriting, I'd maybe cut out the letters individually from magazines or newspapers and paste them together mm -hmm. in a way that says... I feel like listening to the show really enhances people's lives. So maybe it could say something like, listen to me if you want to live. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just tighten up the defense. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, so you could do that. Or you could also probably just, I don't know, tell somebody else. Like if you have a friend. Or you could say a nice thing on the internet about us. Oh yeah, that's true too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, th I think cutting letters out of a magazine or newspaper is probably a pretty good way to go. It's a fun art project. And then they'll know you're artsy, too. It's a good way to make new friends. Mm-hmm. So, make a friend. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, uh, maybe another fun thing to do with that note would be to, like, encourage other people to also make their own art projects. So, like, maybe put a picture of a knife on there so that they'll know that maybe they could take up whittling. Yeah, it's another good idea. Yeah, I've got a lot of good ideas. Mm -hmm. You're chock full of them. I'm a truck full of good ideas? Sorry, chock full. Oh, like, I'm a... uh, Like the coffee. Oh, uh, what? Chock full of nuts. Is that the name of a coffee? Wasn't it? I don't know. So an elephant and a zebra are in the bathtub. Oh, yeah? Uh -huh. Is it sexy? No, because oh. the zebra says, hey, elephant, uh -huh. you got any soap? And the elephant says, Goodbye! Bye! <laughs> and they know it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you were going for? No, no, I was gonna try and remember the uh wee 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 what was it the warm up, the vocal warm up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it? <laughs> oh bad <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> Loosen up. <laughs> oh no. This bodes <laughs> out. This is not gonna go well. <laughs> there you go. Da, 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 da. I like the, the sound yeah, of it. It's good energy. It is. Yeah. It's positive vibrations. Mm -hmm. It's the beginning of John Cena's theme music. Sounds kind of like that, but it also sounds like the beginning of a remix of Anti-Up by M.O.P.
Zah, zah, what? Yeah. But like, yeah, and, and, and that remix, it's like, death to the world! Dang. Yeah, very aggressive. Yeah. 